Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I'm wondering if you've ever faced into active antagonism or some form of harassment or discrimination uh, based on some set of givens that you brought to a situation, whether that had to do with your age or your color uh, or your gender or your height or your acne or your shyness. Or maybe you were a conservative within a very liberal institution or a liberal within a very conservative institution. Or maybe it had to do with something uh, about your past, some aspect of your um, behavior that was held against you. And, you know, there are a vast array of consequences uh, regarding discrimination. And they range, of course. They range from not getting hired for a job or not receiving a treatment that would be just to your situation or stature or education, but it could also take the form of, of crude labeling, being given a name that you didn't deserve or a, um, or a slander or, a, or a, a libelous comment against your character, or maybe having a, um, a yellow um, starry patch stitched into your garments so that people knew your race or your ethnicity. And it ranges all the way, of course, to, to death, to being lynched, to being uh, destroyed because of the color of your skin or your accent or the way your facial features look. Um, but we, we live in a moment right now where we're considering very seriously the subject of discrimination and harassment and antagonism based on our givens. And what's very difficult about the reading from St. Matthew's Gospel today, Matthew chapter 10, is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for this mission trip. And they're going to go on this mission trip without the missioner. They're going to go without Jesus. And he's preparing them. And at the beginning of his little speech, and we didn't read that today, he's very positive. And he's going to tell them about all the great things that they're going to do and see. But toward the end of the speech, and that's where our reading uh, what our reading highlights today. He gets very dark, and he says that you will fall into disfavor with a lot of people, and many people will be antagonistic to you and to what you represent. Uh, and uh, and that's the, the difficult word that I have for all of us today, and I'll end on an upswing, but we can't begin there. Uh, associating with Jesus Christ or an allegiance to Jesus Christ will always relieve certain pains in our lives and will also add other pains. And one of the pains that our associating with Jesus will add is discrimination, that that can and likely will happen. And you'll notice in our text today, especially if you have the bulletin, there are three sections of that text, and I'm going to go through each of them just briefly and I'm going to label them. The first section of text has to do with what I would call antagonized apprentices or antagonized disciples. Uh, that Jesus is saying, when you go out, be prepared to be hurt. 
Uh, and uh, as he sends out the disciples initially, he gives them this mantle of power, something that was not innate to them, but he gifted them with power. In fact, his own abilities and powers. He says to them, I've given you authority to work cures and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. So they have astounding, miraculous, Christ-oriented authority uh, to do what only Jesus could do. Uh, So the only people walking around in the world who could do that sort of thing, Jesus and his apostles, that's it. But I find it fascinating that amongst the powers that they have been gifted, they lack one particular power, which is to prevent personal pain. They can end pain for other people, but they won't be able to end pain in their own lives. And they will experience this sort of pain from all sorts of different uh, sources. Within uh, Reformed theology, they often speak about three realms of authority, three entities or agencies that have legitimate God-ordained authority over us. And they are the church or religious institutions, the state, and family. And what's so sad about uh, Jesus's dark prediction is he says that all three of these governing authorities will turn on you, all three of them. You will be antagonized by religion, Jesus says. In verse 17, they will flog you in their synagogues. You will be antagonized by your politicians, he says in verse 18. You will be dragged before governors and kings. And lastly, you will be antagonized by your relatives, by your own family, your flesh and blood. Brother, this is verse 21, brother will deliver over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. So the very institutions that God has given in creation will turn against the disciples of Jesus and conspire against them. And what the Gospels and the book of Acts traces out is this very thing. The world starts conspiring against the followers of Jesus. Uh, And uh, I, I suppose the question that we ought to ask is why? Why? What in particular about these disciples antagonizes the human race? After all, Jesus just gave them the authority to heal the sick. I mean, that sounds nice. And cast out demons. And that's good. You know, one less problem if you have fewer demons around. Uh, And to raise the dead. You know, fewer funeral costs. So those things you would assume would be received rather warmly. Even to preach a message that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus gave them the authority to do that too. In other words, God has invaded the world in a new way and is setting up his empire. And that empire will eventually expel all that is dark, dismal, and debilitating about the world. All of that sounds very good. I don't know anything that's objectionable about that. But Jesus then mentions the objectionable portion of their ministry and mission. This is verse 22 where he gives them the reason for the world's ire. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For my name's sake. So it's not your powers that are going to create hatred for you. It's me. It's your association with me that will inspire the antipathy of the world. In other words, the, the Prince of Peace severs like a sword 
Uh, his name brings instantaneous controversy. And his name brings controversy because of what Scripture says about his name. The name Jesus isn't just like the name Tim or Roger or Josephine. It's not just one name among others or just one opinion maker among others. Scripture says about the name of Jesus that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Scripture seems to suggest, not seems to, suggests, not suggests, says that Jesus is unrivaled in his nature, being the God-man, and in what he offers, particularly in his demise and resurrection. Uh, and so um, Jesus is a controversial figure because he's not one more good man among other good men and women. He has the highest authority, and that troubles us because we are people who always love to de-shelve God and put some other authority in his stead. Uh, whether that's Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter uh, or our own deep uh, political commitments uh, or our own understanding of family or family values, uh, that we have all of these things, and many of them might be quite good, but we tend to put those things in the highest uh, place. But there is no higher place. There is no higher name than that name which has been named. That is Jesus. And so this name of Jesus, this one who offers something special and unique and unrepeatable to the world, causes controversy. And so you will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus says. So Jesus is the one who gives them specialized authority, but also creates grist and friction with the world uh, around the disciples. And so we have in the first section antagonized apprentices that are attacked by the primary governing sources of the world. But then in the next section, the next paragraph, we see an antagonized master. In other words, Jesus wasn't immune from the terrible terrible treatment that his disciples were going to receive. He says this in verse 25, a little summary statement. If they have called the master of the house, referring to himself, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, Beelzebul, as you may know, is a, an ancient uh, Philistian god, sort of a demon god who uh, um, became synonymous over time with the biblical character of Satan. And actually, Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. And you had to read that novel in sixth grade uh, where you lied about it. You should have read it. It's very good. Um, but, but in other words, what he's saying is the master of the house, and the house is language that describes the world. So the master of the house, which is Jesus, was regarded by the occupants of that house as his antithesis. So when people looked at Jesus in the first century, and people did this. They looked at him and they said, you are evidence of evil. In fact, you're more than the evidence of evil. You're the incarnation of everything that is wrong with the world. You are the incarnation of rape and extermination and hostility and the impulse behind lying and thievery and butchery and war and witchcraft, and it's you. You are the evidence of everything that is wrong with the world. In other words, people became so blind that they eventually labeled good as evil and evil as good. 
It was an, an unholy inversion of reality. And this is what happens when evil starts to occupy our brains, as we start to perceive errantly. Uh, and our thoughts become very, very dark. And this is why when people were seeing great things that Jesus did, particularly when he was acting like, um, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the exorcist, when he was casting out demons, they said, we know how you're doing this. You cast out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, the only reason you have authority to do this is because you're possessed by Satan. And then Jesus later said, he didn't say you were idiots, but he said something kind of like that. He said, you don't, that doesn't make any sense because how, why would Satan align himself against him, against Satan? Uh, so he tries to be logical with them, but they don't follow. And so he eventually says, you're close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unpardonable sin where you're so lost and your mind is so darkened that you invert reality. You call evil good and good evil. And so you see my works and you attribute them to Satan without seeing they're the works of the Holy Spirit in me. And so Jesus is this antagonized master. He is the ideal. He is the archetype of the good, but people label him as Satan. And in a, in a world of social Darwinism, social Darwinism in which ruthless competition uh, um, is, is just part of our parlance and part of the way that we engage with the world, part of the way that we posit ourselves on social media, uh, that, that social Darwinism and a world that is instructed by that methodology and that ideology has no room for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't fit into a world that is run by social Darwinism. I remember what Che Guevara once said of Jesus Christ, that if Jesus was, was, um, was collapsing on the ground in front of him under the weight of the cross, he would kick over the cross and trample Jesus to death, squash him like a bug. That's what Guevara said. And so, don't wear T-shirts with his face on it. I'm just saying. He was a really ruthless person. Um, but in other words, the, 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 the tragic nature of the fall is that God's world has no place for God. God's world has no place for God. There's no room in the end for a Jesus who speaks truth in a, in a world of decadent lies. And there's no room for a Jesus who forgives and forgets X-rated sins in a world that loves eternally lasting grudges. And there is no room for a, a Jesus who claims to be the ultimate monarch in a world that rejects ultimate authority. He just doesn't fit within our dog-eat-dog -dog world. And what he's saying to the disciples is something like this. If the master was libeled, if I was labeled as my opposite, please don't be surprised that you will be too. Because you're painted with my crimson brush. And so there's guilt by association, or that's how people will see things. You can't expect, expect a stroll through a, a field of gilded lilies. And that's why St. Paul says later that we share in his suffering and that he himself bore in his own body um, the, the pains and suffering of Christ. And so we have antagonized apprentices because we have an antagonized master and then lastly, in the last section, Jesus talks about an ultimate fear. Jesus uh, has a complex relationship with the subject of fear. And in this text, he speaks positively as well as negatively about fear. And it seems to contradict because he says to his disciples, be afraid. And at the same time, fear not. This is verse 28. 
And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Skip a bit to verse 31. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So which is it? What's both, but how? Well, when Jesus first mentions fear, that is, he encourages it, he's reminding us of who holds ultimate dominion in his hands. He's saying, look, the church, the state, the family can turn on you. But they can only do so much damage. They can starve you. They can beat you. They can flog you. They can wreck your life and reputation. They can even take away your breath and your blood. But that's all they can do. That's their limit. They can only hurt what is temporal about you. But they can't actually hurt the eternal you. That's one thing that's off limits to them. They don't have authority over that. Um, There is only one who has more authority. Only one. And so remember, you don't belong not ultimately to a flag or a country or an eagle or a race or a cause or a party or even a person whom you love. You don't ultimately belong to your boss. You don't belong to your wife or your husband. Not ultimately. Um, Remember, you have a soul that belongs to the highest bidder. Um, And so what he's saying is you need to have appropriate awestruck fear and respect for the highest authority who has total ownership over you, over the physical as well as the spiritual, uh, over the temporal and the eternal. So fear him who can destroy both soul and body, um, it says, in hell. But then he clarifies the character of this one who has authority over soul and body. He says in verse 31, fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And that came after his kind of odd discussion about birds and grass, right? I mean, Jesus is, is always connecting to the natural world. I mean, he made it. So he's always going back to that and trying to ground conceptions in physical, tangible reality. And he says, look, you might not care about grass or the hairs on your head. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, or <laughs> I certainly don't. Um, uh, or uh, or the natural world. You don't think about birds. I mean, how often do you think about sparrows? You don't actually. They're not good for food. They're too small, and they're not terribly attractive. But God actually cares. God knows the hairs on your head. God knows the, the, the ducks and the pigeons and the birds, and he cares about the birds. And so if he cares about the birds, which were not made in his image, what makes you think that he doesn't care about you? He cares about you a lot more than every other thing in creation. You mean more than antelopes and the Alps. You mean more. Uh, and so he's saying, remember the, the, the one who cares for you, and therefore... We fear him in in the sense of awe and respect of the one who owns our totality. And if we fear him, we will fear other things less. But ultimately, we don't have to have a terror of him um, because he cares for us. While God has the unique authority to cast both body and soul into hell, he won't toss you there because you belong to him. You belong to him, and he has sent his son to bring a grand and everlasting reconciliation between parties. So that's something about antagonized apprentices and antagonized master and ultimate fear. 
So let me give an applicatory word in each category. So antagonized apprentices, uh, we are all, as Christians, bearers of the name. We are baptized in Jesus' name. And this Jesus was, according to Isaiah, a man from whom men hid their faces. He was rejected, and we esteemed him not. Now, for some of us, having a hated Messiah is difficult, and being hated ourselves is even worse. In fact, I have a friend who says, um, being hated by someone, anyone, is a fate worse than death for me. They said, in a very humorous way, and I've copied this and adopted the phrase as my own, uh, I can't stand being hated by anybody or even anybody being mad at me. I would rather saw off my own pinky if it solved that problem. I would rather damage my own body if I could eradicate conflict from my life. And maybe you don't know what that's fe that feels like, but I understand that urge. I'm glad I don't have hacksaws or anything like that, but, um, but here's, here's what's troubling about this passage is that all friends of Jesus will have enemies. At one point or another, hopefully not many, but all friends of Jesus will have enemies because some in the world love darkness rather than light. And many of our siblings all around the world know this right now, in this moment, because they're hiding. They're worshiping in little cellars or attics that, because there are police who will haul them out um, and put them in prison and separate their families or sell their children into slavery. The Archbishop of Joss had his house burned down twice. He wears a little burnt pectoral cross around his neck because that was the only thing left of his house. Um, they kidnapped his wife and children. I know that seems distant from us. It seems like something on a movie that we would watch or a Netflix special, but it really does happen. In fact, the 20th century was, in terms of Christian martyrdom, the bloodiest century of all centuries. And in fact, more Christians died in the 20th century than all other centuries put together. This really does happen to us. So it can happen on an existential level. It can also happen on a physical level that is being hated. But if we are to be hated, brothers and sisters, let's be hated for the right reasons. Let's not be hated because we are culture warriors who misrepresent Jesus in, a, in an obnoxious fashion. Let's be hated because we um, carry with us the character of Jesus in such a way uh, that, that caused people to hate us for the same reasons that the world hated him. So that's something about antagonized apprentices. Now something about the antagonized master. It says in scripture that we are increasingly conform to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I think that can sound very romantic. Like, what does that even mean, to be like Jesus? Because when I think of my association with Jesus, I want to pay off. Like, truth be told, that's all I want, really, with Jesus. Like, I want him to solve all my problems and not add any. Like, if I want Jesus to be like aloe on a sunburn. I want him to take pain away and to make me feel better all the time. I just want him to be aloe for me. Uh, and I think that actually is largely true, but because um, we are loved by somebody who is entirely healthy, and that's what happened with Jesus, you are loved by somebody who's very healthy, that will put you at odds with other people. Um, There's this author named Shirley Nelson who wrote a book entitled The Last Year of the War in which she chronicles her own religious, antagonized religious wrestling. And uh, when Nelson was in college, she attended this chapel service in which the Chaplin was speaking about a new popular movement within pietism 
entitled The Victorious Christian Life. And The Victorious Christian Life was this idea, and it's bogus, but it was this idea that when you become a Christian, life just gets better in every way, and that you're supposed to constantly be improving, incrementally improving all the time. You're climbing the hill of holiness day by day, um, getting better without and with fewer and fewer problems and, uh, and setbacks. And this is what the chaplain said about that idea. He said, I'm all for the victorious Christian life, but I prefer to call it the life that loses. Some think that life in Christ is unquenchable joy, a new strength of character, unending serenity, and steady faith. But if you ask for the eyes of Christ, you may be horrified by what you see. If you ask for the heart of Christ, yours will in fact be broken. Touching broken lives means to be touched in return by the world's misery. The healer risks infection. And therefore, Christ offers minimum protection, maximum support. We have an antagonized master who invites us to share in that antagonism a very difficult thing but through that antagonism we are formed and shaped and remade and actually in the long run become the recipients of a happiness uh, that we could not receive in any other way because as my friend uh, is wont to say God never ever ever picks us up that is, removes us from our place of safety and security, never picks us up without setting us down in a wider place. So that's something about the antagonized master and our connection to him. And lastly, something about ultimate fear. In Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul describes our fallen condition in this unnerving way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. In other words, the fall doesn't make us afraid of everything. It causes us to fear the wrong things too much. It causes us to fear only the things that can inhibit or restrict our temporary comforts or causes us to fear the wrong people, right? That we believe that our ultimate crisis is in the hands of the government or Jeff Bezos or a boss or a tweeting president or the deep state, or Dr. Fauci. That might be correct. Jury's out. Um, but when we fear these things too much, we make these people or these institutions into dark demigods. We give them a divinity that they do not possess. And, and so we become, in some ways, enslaved or devoted to them by an artificial fear. But what, the, what Jesus is telling us here is, look, you're more than just your body and your decaying teeth and your heart valve problem. and You're more than just somebody who pays taxes or is afraid to pay taxes or is hiding your money in a shelter so you don't have to pay taxes. You're more than all that. You, you're an eternal being. And God owns both parts, right? Both parts. So... So we are to have a holy fear in the one who ironically can cast out all fear. Yeah. 
So our world, as presently constituted, is a ruthless and serrated place, and we will on occasion feel the edge of that. But this is not our palace. It's not our forever home. Our forever home has been invaded by the son of the everlasting father. And therefore, in the long run, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Swords will become plowshares and spears shall become pruning hooks. Antagonism and discrimination will die. That is our certain future. And by God's grace, may it become increasingly true of our present as well. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your